Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. I'm moving on from the West Memphis 3 case, not to leaving it totally behind, but uh, I've, I've covered it pretty well. There, there's some aspects of it that I, I still haven't, haven't gotten into. Uh, and I think there's probably three or four episodes in particular I, I have an eye on uh, that go into some of the background, particularly of uh, Eccles' occult beliefs and the sources of some of his present-day actions, attitudes, and uh, so forth. Um, I'm going to occasionally drop in with a, a podcast episode and recently on the FX uh, channel there's a what was it uh, a docu-series called A Wilderness of Error it was all about the Jeffrey McDonald case it's not a case I knew a lot about say two months ago but I've, I've read a lot on it I, I knew just sort of the basic real basic facts of it uh, I read uh, a lot on it, watched a lot of footage of interviews, etc. Just, just basically immersed myself in the case for about uh, for about a month, about six weeks before the series aired, and and I've read quite a bit since. And uh, I'm going to probably do two episodes on it. I mean, it's a huge case. You, could, I could spend. You know, I, I could do a hundred episodes, I guess, on the Jeffrey McDonald case if I wanted to. But a lot, you know, you can read uh, Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis and get a pretty good idea of what it's all about. And that's a gigantic book. I'm certainly not going to read McGinnis's book, but I'd be drawing an awful lot on that if I did do such a case. And, and then there's, I, I've read a lot of the transcripts, not all the transcripts, but... Hundreds, hundreds of pages of the transcripts, the most relevant stuff I could find, and uh, and lots of other stuff. So, uh, I'm going to be talking to a large extent how this case relates to. I'm not just I'm not going to be just going over the facts of the case. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about the docu-series itself, its actual presentation of, of the facts, uh, Errol Morris's presentation of the facts and his, his book that the docu-series is sort of based on, and uh, how this all relates to the current wrongful conviction movement. And uh, and I've written this out, so you don't have to listen to me extempor uh, make extemporaneous comments from this point. Suffer, suffer along with that. Um, at a great distance from the morass of extraneous detail, the Jeffrey McDonald case, like other basically generic cases, such as the Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey case, Making a Murderer, or the Adnan Syed case, the Jeffrey McDonald case stands clear as murder by the most obvious suspect, 
perpetuated in the most obvious manner. A half century of misdirection, legal wrangling, and media hype, however, have rendered the 1970 murders of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen McDonald strangely obscure to those wandering in the fog of the wrongful conviction movement. Aside from the killer himself, the handsome, dashing, Princeton-educated Green, Green Beret doctor who blames the late-night slaughter on, of his family at Fort Bragg on drug-crazed hippies, uh, the case has been dominated by various overpowering personalities, such as the grieving patriarch, Freddie Kassab, the stepfather of Colette McDonald, uh, the exemplar of treacherous journalism, Joe McGinnis, the maddeningly perverse and pathetic drug addict, Helena Stokely, the overbearing defense attorney, Bernie Siegel, and a host of lesser but colorful characters. More recently, Errol Morris entered the picture in 2012 with his book, A Wilderness of Error, which commended, commendably updated and revisited aspects of the February 17, 1970 murders. And I say commendably because I, I think it's good if he's that interested in the case. I think it's good to go back and take a look at it. He uh, renewed conversations with people from back in that day. Uh, and there's a lot of that in the docu-series as well. We see up, updates of uh, what people have to say. It doesn't seem to have changed a whole lot. Um, and a as in the documentary series, we hear anew from figures in the case. You know, one of the fascinating aspects of such projects is simply to note how people age over time, how they change, how even if the message is the same, who it's coming from some, somehow seems different over time. Uh, but Morris gravitated all too closely to the long discredited theory that Helena Stokely was the hippie with the long blonde hair, floppy hat, and boots, who supposedly chanted, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, as her three three-plus companions attacked the McDonald's during a home invasion. Well, the attackers left slight wounds to McDonald aside from a small chest wound that punctured a lung. Colette, McDonald's pregnant wife, who was a five-month-old male ch child on the way, Five month, the fetus was five months long. She, the baby, it wasn't a five month old baby. Uh, and, uh, and Colette and five year old Kimberly were brutally beaten and stabbed numerous times. And two year old Kristen died from a number of carefully placed stab wounds. What's really particularly horrible is defensive wounds were found on uh, Kristen's little hands. The word pig was written in blood on a headboard in the master bedroom, and this was mere months after a similar scenario in the Manson killings. Investigators soon came to believe that McDonald drew some of his inspiration from an article 
on the Cali California killings that was found in a copy of Esquire magazine in his living room. And aside from a speck of blood on his glasses, the only other blood evidence found in that room, and that was the room he claimed he was stabbed, stabbed in numerous times, was a smeared print on the magazine. The Esquire magazine had a bloody print smeared. Though McDonald claimed he had been viciously attacked while he was sleeping on the sofa, the room was barely disturbed aside from the coffee table on which the magazine had been sitting. Aside from the magazine, uh, aside from the coffee table on which the magazine had been sitting, and it the coffee table was knocked on its side. Uh, McDonald's story was considered somewhat suspect from the very first. He, after all, was a 26-year-old athlete and military captain who had un undergone elite military training. He seemed to have offered minimal defense to a supposed attack on his family. The hippies on acid stories sounded over the top, even in the age of Manson. And while there was no obvious motive for McDonald to kill his wife and children, there similarly was no obvious motive for a group high on drugs to randomly enter the home of a Green Beret on Fort Bragg and kill its most vulnerable inhabitants while leaving the only credible defender barely bleeding. McDonald was charged with the three murders several months later after an unprecedented three-month adversarial criminal investigative division hearing known as an Article 32 hearing, and it's not a court-martial, the case was dropped for a lack of evidence. He seemingly had gotten away with the crime. And then McDonald made some fatal errors. He moved to California, leaving the Kassabs behind. The Kassabs were... Uh, Colette's parents, uh, her, Freddie Kassab was her stepfather, but they were very close, and her mother Mildred had married Freddie when she was a relatively young teenager. Uh, and they were, you know, their, the daughter, their daughter and their two grandchildren were killed. Obviously, they were tremendously traumatized by this, and grieved over this for years and really the rest of their lives and they were somewhat upset that uh, Jeffrey McDonald had just seemingly blithely moved out to California and adopted you know a California lifestyle and uh, you know a young doctor of the in the in the 19 uh, early 1970s which would have been a Pretty vibrant sort of lifestyle in that era, to put it nicely. He concocted, we're talking about McDonald, concocted for the benefit of the Kassabs a story about tracking down and killing one of the real killers in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is very near Fort Bragg. And he made a strangely lighthearted appearance on the late night Dick Cavett show. The appearance on TV outraged many of his acquaintances, particularly his grieving in-laws. And then he delayed getting transcripts of the hearing to Freddie Kassab, who, when they were finally delivered, 
Kassab poured over the documents intensively and his outrage grew. Now, Kassab had been a strong supporter for some time of McDonald, um, and, and, you know, in the initial charges, and of course he was supportive in the, the, the early, early stages where they were both just simply grieving the loss of the, this family. But at this point, he turned completely. He launched a years-long intensive campaign to bring Jeffrey McDonald to justice. And when officials were unresponsive to his demands, and he went all the way up, he went up as high as you could go with his demands and his his uh, uh, pleas for justice. Kassab filed a citizen's criminal complaint, which put the case before a federal grand jury in 1974. And McDonald was indicted on all three murders in 1975. He, he managed to win periods of freedom on bail, during which he resumed the high life he had adopted as a young, successful doctor in California. But after appeals failed with the Supreme Court ruling, there and the litigation on this case is just tremendous, which is why I say you could sp I could spend forever on this case if I wanted to get down in all the dirty details on it. Uh, as you can see, uh, just to go to trial, we have have already had a lot of stuff going on, including a, a, a record-setting uh, CID hearing and a Supreme Court ruling. And there was a huge, uh, other huge investigations. Excuse me, I'm getting a ting here. Uh, McDonald managed to win periods of freedom on bail, during which he resumed the high life he had adopted as a young, successful doctor in California. But after the appeals failed, he went to, finally went to trial on J July 19, 1979. He was convicted of second-degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly and first-degree murder in the death of Kristen on August 19th, and he received three consecutive life sentences. And the reason they gave a first-degree murder to uh, the death of Kristen is it's... The theory of the case is that he, he acted out in a kind of rage toward Colette and Kimberly. But Kristen was just a two-year-old in her bed, and he deliberately, with a forethought, went in there and stabbed the child to death, as horrible as that sounds. Uh, McDonald's has made a number of subsequent appeals, one of which won him 15 months of freedom before it was reversed by the Supreme Court in 1982. In other words, he, you know, he gets convicted of the, these crimes. He gets sent to prison for a while. He gets out on a, uh, he gets out on appeal. He goes back and he's having the high life again in California, and then the Supreme Court reverses the appeal in 82 and he's back in prison again 
And he's been there ever since. But he's continued to litigate for his freedom. Indeed, and I think you can well believe it just on what I've said so far, the case may well be the most litigated case in American legal history, covering all sorts of arcane legalities that I'm not going to even attempt to describe here. Now, Errol Morris is probably best known for his documentary, The Thin Blue Line, a rare and early example of a true crime, wrongful conviction documentary that revealed what appeared to be an actual wrongful conviction. In 1989, Randall Dale Adams was exonerated in the 1976 murder of a Dallas cop just six months after the release of the documentary. His original sentence of death by lethal, lethal injection had been commuted to life in prison in 1980. And that, obviously this was the, 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 case, uh, the, the case of Randall Dale Adams was the case that was examined in the Thin Blue Line. Now, I had not seen the Thin Blue Line in at least 20 years, but I've been a fairly early fan of Errol Morris and um, like Gates, I liked Gates of Heaven about the Pet Cemetery, Vernon, Florida, about Vernon, Florida, and uh, which are really quite different uh, in tone and style from the Thin Blue Line. And I, I really liked the Thin Blue Line when I saw it. And I've, I've seen it several times, but I had not seen it recently. And I, I had remembered the presentation of the case as, as a thorough exoneration. After a recent viewing, I found that I had done what most viewers of such documentaries do. I had succumbed to the message without giving it much thought. While Thin Blue Line does a very effective job of pointing to a young man named David Harris as the actual shooter, and he was, they were both in this, they had both been in this car that they were riding around in. Harris, had, it was a stolen car. Harris was 16 at the time. He picked up uh, Adams as a hitchhiker, and they'd spent a whole day with each other drinking, smoking pot, etc., etc. It it did a good job of pointing to Harris as the actual shooter. It by no means proves that Adams was not the shooter. In other words, it looks like Harris did it, but it doesn't really exonerate. Randall Dale Adams, and at least unanswered and unexamined the possibility that Adams was at the very least a passenger in the car from which Harris shot Officer Robert Wood doing a very routine traffic stop. The chronology central to the case leaves open such questions as why Harris and Adams became such fast friends after Harris picked up Adams while he was hitchhiking when his car ran out of gas, or why they went to a softcore porn drive-in in late November, or why Adams would insist on leaving early, leaving the, the movie early as he claimed, or 
why Adam's brother, who was traveling with Adams, refused to let Harris stay over in their motel room, or why Harris suddenly drew a blank when describing for police what happened when he turned onto the road as he was driving this car where the murder occurred. In other words, was he driving after all? You know, uh, why can't his brother offer him a, a good solid alibi? Questions. There's some questions there. Maybe not great questions, but there are questions there. And, but Harris does all but confess to the murder in the movie. The crime was committed with a pistol he'd stolen from his father. He had also stolen the car in his hometown of Vidor, Texas. He was a 16-year-old runaway on a crime spree, apparently giving little thought then or later in his criminal career to the consequences of his actions. He ultimately was executed for committing another unrelated murder, and it was never tried in the, the case of uh, Officer Wood. Uh, Adams, who has also died since the movie's release, by contrast, had no criminal record whatsoever except for you know, the one that was featured in the movie. Uh, besides heralding a new style of true crime documentaries focusing on miscarriages of justice, uh, we're going to typo here, Thin Blue Line was also pioneering in its technique, particularly the use of recreated scenes from the crime. Morris was heavily criticized at the time for these touches of fictional touches from, you know, fictional film, but rec recreations have since become ubiquitous, though often annoying. For instance, and you can find many examples of this, but one that just came to mind for me was Joe Berlinger's docuseries on Ted Bundy for Netflix, Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes, features any number of such scenes. One typical scene is innocuous footage of two young people dressed in 1970s garb walking down the sidewalk. Now, most people aren't going to give that much thought at all, but is this long-lost footage of Ted Bundy and a girlfriend out for a stroll? Or found footage of two strangers from that era? is most likely a recreated and wholly unnecessary staged scene by Berlinger. What are we watching? Is this fact or fiction? What's real and what's not? Does it matter anymore as long as the message, the all-important narrative, is delivered? Morris was perhaps the first to blur such lines in the genre, and he paradoxically embraces the resulting competing versions of reality while claiming to be a seeker of truth. The fact that his use of the technique is captivating and clearly staged does not belie the problem inherent in dramatizing reportage. As happens so often, none who have followed have eclipsed the pioneering vision. In other words, his vert, his, the way he did that was still the best I've seen. And, you know, that's true with lots of things. Go listen to Elvis's first records. <laughs> has, has anything been better since? I, arguably not. 
while the new FX docuseries shares names with Morris's book on the McDonald case and draws heavily on Morris's style of slow motion, almost hypnotic docudrama to recreate scenes and examine evidence, the series parts in significant ways from the book. In the opening credits for the series, Morris states, and this you see this repeatedly as you go on through the series, since it's in the opening credits, something really, really bad happened here. It was a miscarriage of justice. What happens when a narrative takes the place of reality? It's almost as if nothing really happened in history unless it has been recorded in a movie or in a television series. That's the end of the quote. Now, the something really, really bad that happened here was not a miscarriage of justice. And there's very little evidence there's a miscarriage of justice here. The courts have rejected that argument repeatedly. There are narratives that have taken the place of reality in this case, the Jeffrey McDonald case I'm speaking of now, and in and, uh, and many other cases. The narrative of a miscarriage of justice is a narrative that has taken the place of reality all too often. Surprisingly, the series adopts a radically different narrative than its source, while managing to obscure its ultimate beliefs on innocence or guilt. Director Mark Sperling had a hand in two previous true crime projects that perhaps many of you will be familiar with. As a producer of the Andrew Jarecki-directed Capturing the Freedmans, which was nominated for an Oscar, and as co-writer and producer of The Jinx, about the life and crimes of Robert Durst. Jarecki also directed The Jinx, which is perhaps best known for its final scenes in which, scene in which Durst, unaware that he's being recorded while in the restroom, mumbles to himself, What the hell did I do? Kill them all, of course. Uh, the documentary was lauded by critics, and it is also notable for its use of recreations of scenes, particularly young Durst witnessing his mother's suicide. And, you know, obviously when you see that, you know you're not seeing actual footage. There's no doubt about that. And it makes it somewhat excusable, at least, and it's an attempt to sort of understand what made Durst what he is, though perhaps even if his mother had not committed suicide, he would still be the person he is. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where you try to pick out one single uh, incident that happened in a person's life to explain the rest of their life. And that's, you know, in some cases that I'm sure that's quite valid, but in other cases, yeah, you know, his mother committed suicide and I'm sure it had a bad effect on him. Did it make him a killer? Mm. He might have been one anyway. Uh, but it was a sale for its editing of its final taped quote and for its handling of evidence against Durst and three, possibly three murders. In other words, it, it played around with the footage. The tape quote was, 
of course, represented a betrayal of the trust that Durst had placed in Jarecki and Smurling. Smurling and Jarecki similarly had played an ambiguous role in the Friedman case, exposing the father and son at the center of the story as child molesters, but in sympathetic portraits, and with Jesse, Jesse Friedman being less clearly a child molester, much as the repellent Durst was often presented in a sympathetic light, portraying not their subjects, but perhaps their audience. They even helped uh, fund Jesse Friedman's appeal. Similar sort of betrayal lies at the heart of a wilderness of error, and it's by no means the most egregious breach of trust in the history of the case. Uh, Joe McGinnis famously wrote an acknowledged true crime, true crime classic, Fatal Vision, about McDonald, gaining, gaining unprecedented access to the accused, the defense team, and the evidence by de facto joining the defense team. And this was largely in the role of best friend to Jeffrey McDonald. Uh, McDonald's attorney, Bernie Siegel, had urged McDonald to get a noted author to write his story, partially to gain public sympathy and partially to pay the legal bills for Siegel's services. As part of the deal, in contradiction, addiction to widely accepted standards of journalism, McDonald was given a share of the proceeds from the book. This is really a bargain in hell. McDonald agreed to McGinnis's provisions that McDonald would exercise no control over the content of the book, but he clearly expected it to be favorable, favorable to his case. McGinnis, however, as he heard testimony, saw evidence, and received numerous lengthy tapes on which McDonald described his life in consistently self-serving, deceptive, and shallow ways, came to regard McDonald as guilty. He also spent just an enormous amount of time during the trial with McDonald. They essentially lived together. Uh, after the conviction, Conviction, however, McGinnis continued to give the impression that he was on McDonald's side, virtually right up until the publication date. Now, McDonald, feeling betrayed by his former so-called best friend, sued McGinnis, alleging breach of contract, and the case went to court in 1987. Uh, McGinnis was thoroughly grilled on the stand, and his reputation subsequently suffered because of it various ethical lapses. I mean, he played around with the facts, uh, you know, the materials, not so much the facts, but the materials, you know, ju juggling quotes, etc. The jury totally stymied over the complex legal issues, and with a juror who was dead set on deciding in favor of McGinnis, quickly deadlocked, McDonald agreed to settle out of court for $325 justifying, as is often the case with out-of-court settlements, that it's cheaper to settle out of court than to just go back to court again. However, McDonald's former in-laws, 
The Kassabs sued in an attempt to keep McDonald from profiting from the murders. And that suit was settled with the Kassabs largely prevailing, though McDonald was granted compensation for legal expenses. And then, not this just gets more complicated all the time, doesn't it? In 1990, a writer for The New Yorker, Janet Malcolm, wrote a book about the McDonald McGinnis dust-up entitled The Journalist and the Murderer. Now, that book has become a classic of sorts in what now pass as journalism courses. While Malcolm evidenced the profound disinterest in the actual facts of the case, she weighed in heavily on her real interest the seeming impossibility of honest journalism in her much-quoted first two sentences of the book. And these they are, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust, and betraying them without remorse. No, uh, you know, no, 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 just no. Perhaps that is true for some of the writers in the stratified zone inhabited by the New Yorker, but those people are far from every journalist. The circumstances surrounding the writing of Fatal Vision are not only not typical, the arrangement between that particular journalist and that particular murderer was well nigh unique. McGinnis's later attempts to justify his actions are not particularly convincing. It's clear that getting this, the story outweighed any other considerations. Though undoubtedly, he suffered pangs of conscience. But, you know, a journalist does not have to misrepresent himself or his intentions to gain access to a story. As was the case with Jeffrey McDonald, the stories often come looking for the journalist. Often enough, the publicity is favorable, though subjects of news stories are often flabbergasted by the results. And often enough, the facts are correct, but the writer's presentation lacks the necessary insight to get right at the truth. Uh, the result can be annoying and that perception is common. And also I've had that personal experience where something I knew a whole lot about, I was personally involved in and there was a news story about it and, and yeah, there wasn't anything actually factually wrong in the story, but it just, they didn't understand what was going on. This story may even feel like an out-and-out -out betrayal, but most journalists, aside from those at the New Yorker, apparently, don't go into a story making promises. Very, very few journalists, however, will ever find themselves in McGinnis's hope, hopelessly compromised position. After a few encounters with local TV reporters in which the results range from disappointing you know, in my response, after all the great things I had to say, they only ran an eight-second soundbite uh, to bothersome. They got more wrong than they got right, which has happened. 
too enraging. They lied. I tell my friends, don't talk to reporters. That advice certainly applies to docu documentary filmmakers. Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinoski, and here we go back into the West Memphis Three, blithely betrayed the Moore, Byers, and Hobbs families after the briefest of encounters with the West Memphis Three killers, never mind the months of supposed sympathy for the crime victims. One look at Jason Baldwin's skinny wrist and Joe Berlinger knew, with no other evidence, that the three were innocent. Or witness the members of the Avery clan who cooperated with the making of murderer filmmakers for years. And they only to find out, to find themselves accused as the real killers when all the other alternatives to actually proclaiming the guilty as guilty dried up. In other words, Stephen was ready to throw anybody and everybody under the bus, including his relatives and the filmmakers were willing to go along with it. There's been a similar sort of betrayal at the heart of the Jinx and capturing the Freemans, and the tradition carries on with a wilderness of error. Morris has hung his version of the McDonald killings on the Stokely story, on the hippies being the actual killers, though every time when it actually counted, when she was talking to investigators, prosecutors, or testifying in court, Stokely, instead of seeming to admit to the attack, adamantly denied any involvement. In fact, the bottom line is that Helena Stokely was so consistently inconsistent in talking about the murders, gave so many contravening versions, so often blamed the drugs she used in enormous quantities for her wavering memories, that she lacked all credibility at every point in the case history, right up to her death from cirrhosis at age 32 in 1983. There was never any evidence tying her to the killing beyond the most tenuous links. The courts rightly recognized that and ruled accordingly when the defense tried to bring in a half dozen of her friends and acquaintances to testify and further confuse the record. It seems that Morris is so much convinced that Jeffrey McDonald is innocent but that Jeffrey McDonald didn't get a fair trial because the stove. Oh, it seems that Morris is not so much convinced that Jeffrey McDonald is innocent. He's convinced that Jeffrey McDonald didn't get a fair trial because the Stokely matter wasn't fully explored in open court. McDonald has spent much of the last 50 years aggressively appealing one court decision after another and has never prevailed on, upon final appeal. It's true that there are a large number of strange circumstances surrounding the Stokely matter. One blonde in a floppy hat after another, one drugged out potential suspect after another, one half-assed confession after another, along with Stokely's seemingly sincere conviction that she was involved to the point that she passed polygraph test. Read the testimony of the six acquaintances who testified outside the presence of the jury about Stokely's claims, however, and you will find wisp, ghost, and phantoms. Nothing sticks except the testimony she gave, saying she had nothing to do with the killings. And a 2012 Slate article 
and this was about the time that the, his book came out. Uh, Morris says of Janet Malcolm's disinterest in the facts of the case, what bothers me, and I've told her this, is that she essentially made an argument for the relativity of truth. In general, evidence never speaks for itself in spite of all the doctrines that says it does. Evidence always becomes part of an argument, a narrative. And that argument and narrative can be tested against reality. Here's a line that I wrote that got left out of the book. Janet Malcolm says that trying to discern McDonald's guilt or innocence from the evidence he sent her is like trying to prove the existence of God by looking at a flower. But the existence of God is taken on faith. The innocence or guilt of a criminal defendant is not, period. That sounds all well and good, but Morris doesn't follow his own doctrine. In fact, he makes a similar sort of error that Malcolm makes. He sides with the idea that McDonald's innocent based on spurious facts, but leans heavily on his claim that the justice system did not deal with him fairly, despite his numerous appeals by high-priced lawyers. Ultimately, Morris makes arguments for the unknowability of simple facts. And he has a lot in common with many supporters in the wrongful conviction movement. The facts are right before them and they'll, they'll argue almost literally anything but the obvious. And yet, when he's asked in an interview, what makes you believe that Jeffrey McDonald just might be innocent? Morris answers, evidence. Since A Wilderness of Error, the book and the series, cherry picks the facts and prevents a profoundly skewed version of the McDonald story. This old story of wrongful innocence may regain some traction in today's present climate. This could be true despite the fact that the series presents a wealth of evidence pointing to his guilt. The social climate is ripe to tear down the system that put him in prison. Few viewers will bother to delve beyond what they captured on their DVR. The memory of the wildly successful Fatal Vision miniseries starring Carl Malden from 1984 is rapidly fading for those who even had such a memory to begin with. McGinnis, among many other players in the story, are long gone while McDonald relentlessly persists, decade upon decade. We suspect all his efforts will end much as the appeal featured in the series ended. That 2012 bid for a new trial, breathlessly reported on major news networks as the basis for potential freedom for McDonald, was based on statements from a deceased deputy federal marshal that Stokely had confessed to him. Yeah, this guy, Jimmy Britt, claimed that Stokely described her involvement in the killings as he drove her from South Carolina to Raleigh, North Carolina to testify in McDonald's 1979 trial. Uh, Morris, among others, expresses optimism in a film clip prior to the hearings. The actual evidence showed that Britt did not drive Stokely from South Carolina. 
but from a holding cell in Raleigh to the courthouse in a trip that would have lasted but a few minutes. Morris has said the chores to get back to the evidence and the evidence cannot be fatal vision. We may never be able to uncover the truth, but we have to try. The truth is out there and we in principle can find it. Now, the truth has never been dependent on fatal vision. The book was published after McDonald was convicted. The facts of the case presented in court, the evidence, the truth, convicted Jeffrey McDonald. His pajama top, torn, drenched with blood, draped over his wife's body, and punctured by dozens of holes that corresponded to the wounds she suffered from an ice pick, was the most compelling evidence, but there was much, much more. As with many of these other wrongful innocence, wrongful conviction cases, I have wrongful innocence. I, actually, I think it is wrongful innocence. The, the real killer was found, tried, and convicted, and sentenced many years ago. In the final episode, among the final betraying twist, Morris tells the camera, we know, you and I know, that there has to be an answer here. Jeffrey McDonald either killed his family or someone else did. A montage of McDonald telling his story over and over and over again over many years then plays. He describes waking up from the sofa, being surrounded by three men and the woman in the floppy hat. Though it's not in the clips, he repeatedly has described his wife as calling from the bedroom, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, why are they doing this to me? And five-year-old Kimberly, also known as Kimmy, calling for daddy, daddy, daddy. Uh, a brief note, I really can't imagine his wife going, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, why are they doing this to me as she's being stabbed? Uh, and it, uh, there's also the, uh, the question if there are four assailants, three assailants and a, a woman chanting acid is groovy, kill the pigs in the living room with Jeffrey McDonald, then there's got to be at least one other person back in the master bedroom killing Colette and presumably perhaps another person attacking Kimberly. And in fact, there could be multiple people back there. It's a question that's been raised and it's a, a tricky one for some of the Witnesses, witnesses who claim to see various groups of people around the city or around the apartment, com uh, not the apartment complex, but the officer housing at that time. Now, McDonald says he was struck by a club and then stabbed before passing out. Smirling then offers up an interview with Helena Stokely. She's speaking to her old Fayetteville, North Carolina police contact Prince Beasley, for whom she served as a drug informant and also to somewhat famous, perhaps notorious is an appropriate word, former FBI man Ted Gunderson, who had contracted with Helena for a book as part of his investigative work on her behalf. 
Stokely describes entering the house with, quote, another member of the cult and struggling with the door. She says there were three other members already in the house talking with McDonald asking for drugs. This is totally at variance with what he says. She describes a struggle, but also an ongoing argument. She is asked about weapons and ponders a long time before saying they were using their fist, but no weapons. Again, at variance with what McDonald says. McDonald supposedly began arguing with them and said he would go to the phone and call someone. When the intruders realized McDonald was attempting to call the MPs, the fighting began, but after he returned to the living room, she says he was, the fighting began, but after he returned to the living room. In other words, he went into the kitchen and then he came back to the living room. Then they had a fight and she, she says he was knocked unconscious. Asked about a club, she said a club wasn't used, not at that time. That's a better story than McDonald's story, though Stokely did have years to concoct it. Morris appears taken aback by this footage as if he's never seen it before. He seemed, you know, he never seems at a loss for words, generally speaking. But in this case, this particular time, he seems at a loss for words. Smirling states, so either she's got her story wrong or Jeffrey's got his story wrong. What do you think? Morse kind of gets himself together here and once he gets himself going, he has no trouble rambling on. He says, I think Jeffrey's account is suspect and it really seems internally inconsistent and not entirely believable. Do I believe that means there were no intruders of the house in the house? Maybe. Maybe it could be an elaborate attempt to cover up his own participation in the crime, but I don't know. Smirling asked, do you think that from that story there that she was in the house? Morris answers, I don't know. Does that tell me she wasn't there? Uh, not really. One thing that we know about human beings is they have an almost infinite capacity to believe anything and people are endlessly suggestible, but it goes both ways, of course. If we don't like a story, and I'm not different from anyone else in this regard, we can say it's confabulation, it's confused, it's unreliable. And if we do like it, we can say, oh, it is reliable, it isn't confabulation, we can depend on it. That's what he says. One thing I say, we know, one thing we know about human beings is, you know, when they don't really have an answer, they can still chatter on. And, and the smarter ones, and Errol Morris is certainly among the smarter ones, can come up with some pretty interesting, insightful things to say that have nothing to do with the subject at hand. Uh, with this bit of folk philosophy tacked on top of the uncomfortable truth that the narratives of Stokely and McDonald don't agree on any point, McGorris begins to recover his Blythe insouciance and goes on to say with self-deprecating good cheer, people take sides, people respond to one narrative versus another. We are compelled by narratives, much more by narratives than by evidence. Evidence invariably takes second fiddle to narrative. And Smurling asks, do you think you're still a reliable narrative in this story? 
Morris says, I never was a reliable narrative. I'm not immune. I'm as fucked up as the next guy. Take my word for it. And my response is, if you say so, Mr. Morris. <coughs> and that's, that's it for the day. Now, if I can figure out how to stop this. I usually have, don't have any trouble with this, but I'm having a little trouble right now. So, just bear with me. I have nothing else to say, by the way. Hope you, hope everyone's well. Doing okay. I'm going to have uh, another episode about the wilderness of air, really talking about Jeffrey McDonald and his use of marketing, news sources, PR, and so forth. And maybe nobody's interested in that except me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, and I still have books for books available on the West Memphis Three: Blood on Black. Uh, where the Monsters Go, and the case against the West Memphis Three Killers. I also have, you know, somebody somebody asked if I had a Patreon account. I didn't, so I opened a Patreon account. So there's a Patreon account under my name, Gary Meese. If somebody wants to send me some money, that's great. I'm not really expecting it. But, you know, it wasn't that hard to set up, and it's there. Um... One thing I, I have learned from these case, various cases is it's really good, and I've known this for a long time, but it gets my, this knowledge gets reinforced constantly. It's good as much as possible to look at primary sources, to look at actual testimony, police reports. And if you want to get a really good view of at least the process, uh, maybe, maybe the defense as well, but if you want to get a really good look at the case, well, you know, look at appeals court's rulings. They usually explain all, most of the major facts of the case, and then they, you know, then they may get into some legal uh, issues that you're not really that interested in, but maybe maybe irrelevant. And overall, it's a good, it'll be a good summation for for understanding the court's thinking on the case, you know, and when it's affirmed, uh, you know, they, uh, you, you get an idea of why the case was affirmed, why it didn't win on appeal, or why it did win on appeal. And it does go both ways. Some cases win on appeal. It happens all the time. And with that, I am going to stop.